Okay, this is a funny story. I left my first job five days into it. I had taken a job with the Federal Communications Commission. I was going to be working with on children's television, making a better world for children out of what they could see on television in the United States. And I got to the Federal Communications Commission and they said, guess what? All the legislation, all the rules are locked up in deadlock and there's no way that this deadlock is going to change. So you can work on satellite. I'm not a satellite person. (laughs) So I had another offer from one of my friends. He had started, helped start Yahoo. He was number three. I called up Tim and I said, Tim, I'm out of luck. I started this job and I'm here in Washington, DC. I'm out of luck. He said, oh, come work for Yahoo. We have about 11 employees right now. Come work for us. I called up my mentor and I asked him what I should do. I said, if I work for Yahoo, my family is in Washington, DC. I just had a new baby. I'd be leaving my husband. At that point, he was working for the United States Supreme Court. So that was a very Tony job. And my baby, I would be separating my child from his father, my mentor said, oh, don't move. Every every company says it's going to go IPO. Every company says it's going to, It's this company's probably dead in the water. So about 10 years ago, my mentor called me up and said, how much money did I cost you by making giving you that advice? I said, oh, about $120 million. What's going on, people? My name is Sid, and welcome back to another episode of Lucid. In this episode, we have a special guest from Duke, a management and leadership professor, Professor Allegra Jordan. She has consulted with various leaders and worked on various projects across the world. On this episode, we talk about her leadership philosophy, how was her time like at Harvard in the 90s, and what she thinks about spirituality and how leaders need to embrace spirituality. I recommend all of you to watch this episode at 1.5x for a better viewing experience. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's hot news. Where are you living in Lou and where are you living in America? We want to talk to you about it. Sangeet Kaur Rajas, I think, Professor, we can start with uh, your management philosophy. The way you've taught us management and leadership at Duke was with an inside-out philosophy. What do you mean by that, and why do you uh, teach us with these principles? Uh, what a great, what a great question uh, to start with. The idea of inside-out is that there is some manager who is taking these actions. Let's know who that manager is, so that you know what your vulnerabilities are as well as your strengths, and that you know some ideas about how you can work with yourself to develop that which is a vulnerability into the strongest way possible forward for you. So the idea for me was when I learned management, I did not learn so much about myself. I learned about techniques, which are very helpful, but I didn't know who I was when I was managing. I had to discover that. So we want to correct for that. And then finally, we wish to help put human management in the context of larger life. And the approach that we use is that humans, teams, communities are here to flourish. We may not flourish, but if we understand that we should be moving towards a flourishing concept, we'll make a lot of better decisions than if we just decide that we're out here to optimize life for ourselves. Right. I think one uh, main takeaway which you mentioned was to understand uh, 
our own selves before we lead others and i remember my first assignment at duke which was uh, building your own personal leadership philosophy and you said this is going to be a working document a living document which is going to be throughout your career why do you think this is really necessary for even people like who are just starting out in the leadership career or not even or someone who's not even a leader why is it necessary for all of us and how did you go about developing it for yourself another really smart question one that many students ask and actually students yeah. don't believe us until like halfway through oh this is actually helpful so one of the questions is why should anybody be led by you it's a very serious question i work with serious people hopefully you do too and you say okay i'm going to lead the team they're going to say okay well how do you plan to lead me why should i be led by you and you need to have some answers and the answers need to be authentic right. Otherwise, people will not respect your authority, they will not respect you, and you'll lose team leadership right away. So we believe that it's very important for you to know your purpose, and your purpose is different from your ambition. So you might wish to be a product manager, but that's not your purpose in life. Hopefully, your purpose in life is much more robust than just the work that you do, even though the work is very important. And then the second idea is, what values do you have so what things are not for sale in your life and uh, it's very important that people think about these two things before going to the next question is what is your personal leadership philosophy and again the the um uh, and in the interview you might be asked if i give you my team of my precious people how will you lead them and you had better be prepared to do that because you know, to answer it in a, in a way that helps you get that job uh, for the right reasons right. they what they want to know for the right reasons right i think i was really fortunate to be in your class to be at duke and learn and uh, build my personal leadership philosophy for those who haven't had that chance if they listen to this and they want to build their personal leadership brand what are the questions do you think they should ask themselves to build it so uh, first, what is my purpose in life? This is a very difficult question, especially for people who've never thought about it before. So if you feel that this is the most difficult thing you've ever answered, you are on the right track. Congratulations. Okay. If you think that that's an easy answer, then you're probably not on the right track. We give everybody the hardest uh, assignment first. The second one is what are your values? What's not for sale? The third would be from your values, from your purpose in life, how will you lead a team? Mm -hmm. Then you should think afterwards about your, uh, what we would call the shapers in your life, the people that you see modeling the way for you in positive, hopefully positive ways, sometimes negative ways, I don't wanna be like X. Um, and that helps you round out your philosophy and know that it's possible because in your own experience, you have seen people lead the way that you wish to lead. I would final, finalize that by asking you some very concrete questions. Are you going to live by this? What, the ba what are the barriers to living like this? Where are you vulnerable? And how will you live that out in the team that you're in? So, so many people think that leadership is something way out there down the line. No, leadership is the next five minutes because to lead is to mm -hmm. influence and you will influence people in the next five minutes. So how can you True. practice in every interaction you have so that you are leading uh, with positive purpose and good values? 
Right, definitely. And I think I'm always inspired by your personal leadership philosophy. Would you like to share your personal leadership philosophy and how you went about developing it? Uh, sure. It took me a long time because I didn't take this course. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, the first idea is what is uh, my purpose? And yeah. I have done a number of different things in my life. So what I can say is that my purpose is to flourish and that I cannot mm -hmm. flourish alone. So flourish with community, uh, with our planet. That is my ultimate purpose. My values require courage, compassion right. and action, also called love, and uh, joy. Uh, I, have, mm -hmm. I, I added that one recently because for a lot of life I have not been too joyful. Um, and then <laughs> integrity. And integrity is both right. honesty and, and um, accountability. So uh, it wraps up into the idea that uh, if someone gives me a team, I will say, I'm here to help every human on this team flourish for themselves and as a team while we meet the mission of the company. Right. Got it. That's very interesting. And I think like using all this expertise you have, you run a consultancy firm, you're, you've uh, done multiple successful projects. And one interesting project that I found fascinating was you worked with different people in Asian countries to help them understand and drive innovation. Can you uh, tell me about that experience? Sure. I loved that project. It was just a delightful uh, opportunity into the lens of how do people in 10 Asian countries who are working in the public health field, how do they view change? So right. this was an innovation project for a large public health company. I, I can't name their name, um, but they had been very successful in the world of population control and HIV AIDS. And now the money mm -hmm. was running out. They had to be successful with different types of grants. So they were investigating uh, 10 different countries in the Asia Pacific area, got together to say, how can our leadership help our countries flourish in public health uh, in a world beyond HIV AIDS. And so this particular project uh, allowed me to do an audit, a culture audit of, uh, of the different regional offices and ask them questions like, what in your country supports change? What are your, what are your stories that you tell yourself culturally about how we innovate and can, can change for the better? And in a country like China, there was a, a very deep mythology um, and history of innovation. But in another country like uh, Laos, that there was a sense, we don't even have the word innovation in our vocabulary. We're a very top-down right. hierarchical culture. And so we had to help people see the beauty in themselves that they do have the ability to change. Even the weather changes. In Nepal, there are six mm -hmm. different seasons. So People clearly change for the different seasons. And so there is a history of changing, even if you ask a, a, a Nepali who is in public health, you know, do you have innovation here? They will say, oh, uh, no, we, we're rather fatalistic culture, deeply entrenched mm -hmm. in Buddhism, accept everything and don't change anything. And that's their frustration. But the truth is that when you look at the culture, they actually do have a, a great uh, ability to adapt. Certainly they, they do it six times a year. Right. I think that's very interesting. I think I have two follow-up questions with respect to that. So one is with respect to the culture audit. I think when you spoke to uh, different regional managers of these public health companies and you saw that uh, it had to change 
how do you go about instilling that change because it's really hard for people to change especially in uh, if it's a cultural change so how do you generally go about it do you have a process to uh, go through it uh, it's even harder if they've been successful because it's almost impossible for a successful team that's still bringing in money to fathom that this money is going to run mm. dry so it it's True. it's a real issue of denial that you have to get through in a, in a culture that, that is successful, that's currently successful. So the process that we would use is we would first do a culture audit. What in the culture um, supports change and inhibits change? One of the key elements we try to find out is how much trust is in the culture. If it's a high trust environment, then a lot of good things can happen. And if it's a low trust environment, not many good things can happen. And we don't try to tell people what will happen. We just try to say good things can happen, not good things can happen based yeah. on the level of trust. And that, that's the whole ballgame. So we'll ask them questions about how their culture deals with conflict, uh, what the level of trust is. We, we're not hiding the ball. They just We're just asking them if we can get honest answers there um, about what the level is, what possibility there is for change. And if we find that there is... Uh, there's usually some uneven level of change ability. So we then start trying to create a vocabulary that's rooted in their own vocabulary. Let's not put a Western business jargon vocabulary on top of them. That's, I find, gross. Um, that's like, you mm. learn my culture so that you can be successful. No, there's some reason that you've been here longer than Harvard Business School or Duke Business School. You, yeah. you, you've been here a lot longer than we have. So, so let us be respectful of what's already in the culture and use that vocabulary to get everybody through some basic trainings on what the process of innovation is and why we might want to change, how we might go about changing. And these, these discussions allow us to create a new conversation within the company. And oftentimes what we find in a company that can't innovate is they've uh, atrophied their ability to have honest conversations with each other. So when you're introducing right. new stories about innovation, people get excited. Oh, this means there's, many people get excited. Okay, th there could be positive change. You discuss elements rooted, again, in their own native language, and suddenly they have the ability to talk not only at each other's levels, but between levels. And what you're going to need to have is a robust ability to have honest conversations. That's the key. Right. Um, and so what we want to do then is leverage that into a strategy summit where we can then start saying, you know, where do you get good ideas? Where do you get new ideas? Mm -hmm. How do we, how does the, how does the company react when a new idea comes in? Do people in America, you just raise your eyebrows, and in some companies, that's enough to kill an idea, okay? Um, yeah. But, um, you know, what are their signals that that idea is dead in the water? We don't know. So we, we discuss how do we take new ideas, how do we judge the ideas? And then one of the challenges for, um, it just depends on the, na the nature of the company. Some companies might be very good coming up with ideas, but they're horrible at implementing them. And others who are great at implementation have you know, are bad at coming up with new ideas. So you, you have to map out where is this team's strength and where is their weaknesses. Right. Very interesting. I think the uh, important point I took it from, the, from there is the importance of vocabulary. And you stress this in uh, my, our classes as well. Why do you think vocabulary is so important? Because in the end, it's the same thing. Like, for example, in this case, it's about innovation. But saying the same thing in a certain way hits the people. Like, why do you think that works? Words are kind of magic, aren't they? 
yeah. And so, so there's some words that we might use that really touch people and give people faith that, oh, I've got this. And, and mm. so uh, there's one element about the inspirational nature of language. Uh, and, but there's a second one, which is uh, that we have distinctions that we, we haven't made before. So people might say change. Well, that's, a, that's like a seven-step process. What, what do you mean by change? By making these distinctions uh, with real specificity, almost lawyer-like specificity, then we can right. diagnose the problem correctly. So the worst thing that you can do to a company is come in and say, oh, you have a problem with innovation. Let's generate some ideas. That's like a doctor coming in to say, oh, you have a problem with, uh, you know, um, a bruise on your toenail. Let me give you a bunch of chemotherapy. Okay. (laughs) We have to, you know, what is the problem? How do we respectfully address the issue? We're all dealing with very smart people. They're making decisions that they believe are wise. And by arming them with a vocabulary that gives them specific distinctions, then they can say, oh, you know what? I was sick, but by sick I meant just my, you know, I stubbed my toe, not I need chemotherapy. And so this yeah. helps us make the, the right solutions go forward. And Yeah, I think uh, it was an important learning for me during uh, my class too, where I understood like, having the right set of vocabulary to explain how you're feeling and like what you want to convey is very, very important. Otherwise, the other person is not going to understand what you're feeling and you're always not going to be on the same page, which is going to be an issue. Communication is very difficult. Um, The more we can be precise about things that we, quote, thought we knew, um, Mm. the more we can try to become more effective at communication. So for an example... One word that is used a lot is respect. We should respect each other. You should respect the professor. I should respect the students. And so um, I taught for a couple of semesters and then finally said, you know, we're using this word respect a lot, but what does it mean to respect somebody? Because, you know, who who knows? So I read some classics books about uh, Chinese and Greek philosophy, and it comes out down to respect is to be curious, open-minded, and willing to do the hard work it takes to either um, understand what's going on or to learn a discipline. And that's it. So suddenly I was telling my students, we're going to respect each other, and maybe Maybe we have different concepts because we're from different parts of the world on what respect is. But in this class, these three things have to be met. And if uh, if only two of them are met, you're not still not respecting. We have to do all three. Right. Right. Got it. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And in your past experiences, was there any situation or experience you had where having that right vocabulary changed the whole direction of that situation? Oh, well, definitely. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example in Thailand uh, that, that we had. Mm-hmm. So um, we were working, uh, I was working with a, a Thai, um, pub, the Thai public health group, and we, we had a language barrier. So Thai is a very complicated language. I was not going to be able to learn it very quickly. And many of them didn't speak English. So okay. a word innovation meant like nothing to them. And so what we wanted to say was, well, it means how do you change? But even that didn't go well with them. And then we added the Lao culture to it. So the team from Laos came to them. And so I had, it was like playing that famous game of telephone where everything gets very garbled very fast. And so I would say, 
how do we change? And then the Thai people would say, well, this is about change. And then the, the Lao people would say, but we don't change. Okay, that's kind of the conversation. I, um, we, were at, we were dead in the water. We were not going to make any progress until the, the Lao team, which was getting everything translated by the Thai team, said, wait, I think I get this. And it was the driver. They had asked that the Lao team had asked the driver of their car to come into the room and to be with them on these trainings. And the driver said, I, I think I got it. Okay. In Lao culture, we, uh, you always tell me where to go. But did you know that I actually know more about how to get to the place than you do? And if you had just asked me how to get there, we would have saved a lot of time and gas these past few years. And, I, and they uh, said, is that what innovation is? I said, yes, it's better, faster, stronger, you know, quicker way to do right. something, but it requires that we change. And so the driver was the person in the Lao culture who then explained it to the, the Thailand people who wow. then explained it to me. And suddenly the light bulb went off. And so this was just right. how do we explain what innovation is in a way that is gets people not in their heads? Because usually the barriers to change are not in your head. It's your fear. Um, but if you see that you're already doing it, then we relax the fear, we get less defensive, and then we can make real progress. And with the Thai group and the Lao group, we actually made a tremendous amount of progress in our innovation journey together. Wow, that's like amazing. And I think that's what sets leadership apart, like very good leadership, because they know how to talk to each individual in their company and what helps them motivate the other employees and uh, uh, do more for the mission of the company. And talking about these leaders, what do you find most intriguing about your favorite leaders in the world? Oh, they blow my mind. They, uh, <laughs> I, um, so I took some time off from working in technology. I was not making much progress in technology. I would teach people innovation, but they couldn't do it. And so it's, mm -hmm. it was very frustrating and a lot of value was being lost. And so I spent some time in, um, I had an opportunity to go either to the University of California, Berkeley, and run an innovation center there, or come to Duke and work with the Center for Reconciliation, which works in post-war environments, and the Center for, uh, um, it, for People Who Are Dying to help them. Right. Um, and I chose to do something different. So I went to the center. I studied sitting with the dying and those who had been in war. Um, and... I learned so much from a few leaders, not a lot of them, but around the world, there are a few leaders who in the face of unbearable realities and irreversible conditions come up with something so inspiring and so new that it just blows my mind. It changes the culture immediately and okay. shows everybody what poor excuses we've been living with, what fear we've been living with. Hey, if a housewife in northern Uganda can come up with a solution that actually works, what were the rest of us mm. doing? So I, I, my favorite leaders will not only literally change the world, they will show us a better path in a way that makes us want to join them on that path. And mm. we'll sit back and we'll all get you know chill bumps on our arms and just like, why didn't we think of that? <laughs> Right. It just it yep. shows us yep. the gap, and and it, it's exciting when I see the gap. I, I'm like, okay, now I know it where I need to work. Right, and if you had to choose your top three leaders, who would it be? Uh, so my first 
the, the top leader for me is Marguerite Barankitsi. She is known as the Angel mm-hmm. of Burundi. Uh, recently, um, she, was rec- she received from um, the Aurora Prize, which is one of the top humanitarian prizes in the world. George Clooney gave it to her. It's, it's a very uh, amazing uh, story that she has. She was a secretary in Burundi uh, during a genocide. She had said that she wanted to adopt children from both tribes that were at war with each other, and she did that. And when genocide erupted in Burundi, she was tied to a stake and watched as 72 of her friends were murdered right in front of her. Her, her okay. children ran underneath an altar, and it, surprisingly, they were not killed. And she came out and she said, instead of, I'm going to have revenge, she said, let's, let's bury everybody, but let us create a new we, W-E, a new we. Yeah. And she was able to create Maison Shalom, a house of peace for all people, uh, which became a model of uh, non-corruption, of the ways that people could model living together uh, to form an excellent community and flourishing individuals. So Ma- Maggie Barankitsi is... Incredible. She has now raised 30,000 people. Um, she's in exile oh, wow. right now um, because the okay. Burundian government, uh, she said you should not have a third term that's anti-constitutional to the president. The president uh, came, raided her place. She's living in exile. And it's so funny to see her in exile in Rwanda because she goes to the camps and she starts hectoring all the children. You are going to be engineers and agronomists and and lawyers why aren't you studying and, and so she's mm. you know whipping all these children into shape to dream new dreams and who goes and into I, refugee camps and says okay kids yep. you're going to be a lawyer and you're going to need those lessons in 10 years so you better start studying yep. now so uh, maggie barankitsi yeah. is number one uh, number two is a woman angelina atiam and she was given the united nations human rights prize um in and it came up she was a housewife and her um, daughter was abducted in the, the wars following Idi Amin. So there was the Lord's Resistance Army, which came in, uh, abducted children, and used them as child soldiers. And she said, if we go into the jungle and bush with, with bullets, we will be killing our own children. So how do we do this? And in this world, it's, it's a, everyone's Christian quote, Christian, they'll, they'll kill you in a second. Um, but she said, how about if we end up um, telling them, using the Christian model for them, which is to forgive. So she set up all these radios in the bush and said, we'll forgive you. Uh, we know that you're Christian, we'll forgive you, let's live together. After these people had done amazing atrocities, it did not win her many friends, mm-hmm. but her daughter came home alive along with thousands of other children. People understood wow. that the the way of peace was better. And finally, I grew up in Selma, Alabama, which is where Martin Luther King Jr. Um, came from, or he, he actually, he didn't come from there, but he was from the area, and he led the Selma March, which is an Oscar-winning movie um, in America. And growing up there, I learned that the, uh, the African-American population in our country has really been at the vanguard of American culture. They have taught us over and over again to not hate people who who treat you hatefully, but to inject okay. love into society. And I sit back and I think, wow, if they can do this, you know, if they can do if if this population can do this with such um, justification for hating, then what's hmm. my excuse? So I love leaders who yeah. ask me about you know who 
forced me to think about what poor excuses I'm having, I'm accepting for a life of living small. These people make me live big. Right, definitely. Uh, and talking about Salma, Alabama, you grew up there, you spent a lot of your childhood there, and you've also mentioned that you've interacted and learned from leaders who uh, you know, worked with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. So what was your experience like growing up in Selma and what learnings you had there? I wish I could um, be prouder of my experience in Selma. I was on a military, uh, I was born in the military uh, during the Vietnam War and my dad had taken pilot lessons in Selma, Alabama. So after he got out of the military, he had bought a house during his pilot training and we we lived in Selma. And I was traumatized. I come from a place, New Jersey. Um, I had a New Jersey accent, so I sounded very different. I came from a different culture. So I, I was an outsider there. And I wasn't treated particularly well uh, by other kids when I got there. And so all I could think about was getting out. How could I get out? Mm-hmm. Of course, if I had to do it over again, I would have said, look at the riches of this area. It's deeply impoverished. It, it's, it, it's a place with quite a bit of blood in the soil. And yet, look True. at these teachers who have grown up in this experience, and they have taught the world something different, uh, to, to love, not to hate. I would have spent way more time with those people. Um, and so mm-hmm. in, in that case, my sixth grade teacher, Richie Jane Jackson, hosted uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights March. Um, she, uh, she is in the movie Selma. Uh, her character is played by um, a beautiful actress. And I got to be with Mrs. Jackson her entire life. She died about uh, maybe about five or six years ago. And we were always in touch. And I would ask her things like, um, I w- for instance, I went through a divorce and I asked uh, Miss Jackson, Miss Jackson, I'm just going through a divorce, but you had your friend Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated. You sat at his funeral. You were so disappointed by this. How did you do it? What was your inner strength for dealing with with uh, what we would call Jim Crow laws? And those are the laws that uh, that are very uh, punitive to black people. You know, how, how did you do this? And she you know, she had no reason to teach me a white person about this, but she would sit down with me and she'd say, this is how I let it go. You have to, sometimes the world just gets so bad, you have to let it go. And she would walk me through her meditations of how to let things go. She would help me understand how to put whatever suffering you have in the broader context. And she would show me by example that you treat everybody fairly, equality for all. Let's live by the noblest elements enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, not the worst. Boy, is that inspiring. So I try to remember Ms. Jackson every time uh, I'm faced with a situation that I feel like I might feel sorry for myself. And, And this is one of the great lessons to me of Selma, Alabama. Great treasure. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think growing up in Selma, Alabama has taught you so much and that like it's a experience that has shaped you who you are today and I think from Selma, Alabama you went to Harvard Business School and how was Harvard like in the 90s? (laughs) That's a a good question. So I went to, um, I I started a a company when I was in uh, undergraduate school and it was about a half million dollar company and it got me into Harvard Business School 
early. So I was yeah, one of the right. younger people at the school. They asked me to work two years in Boston, and it was a terrible time in the Boston economy. There was a huge recession, lots of people being laid off. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job in the school being a researcher. And so suddenly I go from being, uh, you know, the CEO of my own company to being a secretary. Okay, that was, that was difficult. But the places I got yeah. to go because I was with uh, two Harvard Business School professors. So I got to visit Silicon Valley in the early days when Palm Pilot was the big company out there. Um, and then we, we got to see the beginning of the internet. We got to see uh, literally the beginning of the internet. One of my friends showed me uh, I guess Gopher and Mosaic. I mean, it took us like three days to download. Um, um, but that friend actually went on to find uh, to found the company E Inc, which did the interfaces, a wire, uh, radio paper idea, um, uh, huge interfaces, a uh, Sony's uh, Sony's uh, pad, uh, reading pad. I, it's not Kindle, oh. but I forgot what the name is. They they used his interface, and, and he sold for like. $400 million, something like that. It's it's pretty interesting. So a lot of my friends made these big fortunes because we were coming up at the right time. That's just when the internet was getting going. Um, however, uh, Harvard Business School was a place, uh, it was known as the West Point of Capitalism. It taught mm -hmm. that the purpose of business was to make money for shareholders, and you were ridiculed if that was not the case, if you if you disagreed with that. Um, and um, And it was not a place that I fit in very well, not because they of their problems, because I probably should have been going to a school for social work uh, or a school for uh, philosophy rather than a school for doing deals. And um, so, but I loved, uh, what I loved in this, uh, in Harvard Business School was accounting. And what I learned about accounting was if you get into the forensic elements of accounting, you know how people are lying to you without even having to ask them a single question the questions that you will ask after you review their, uh, their uh, financial documents will be different. They'll be much more pointed and you'll get to the truth a lot faster. You'll save yourself quite a lot of time. So I discovered um, that I loved accounting out, out of that. And then mm -hmm. I went used, um, used my financial knowledge in different ways afterwards. But um, the, uh, the gift of Harvard Business School was to help me understand that I really could work hard at the top level of the world. I could do high quality analysis, I could, um, I could do all of the assignments. The uh, thing that I did not get out of Harvard Business School was a community. So I was friends with professors, but other students and I, our, our chemistry wasn't great. And I was also married. I had a child while I was at Harvard Business School. And so I was in a, in a different phase of life than many of the people I was with. However, life can be long, and these days I'm now getting to re-know my uh, classmates from 25 years ago. And it's a delight because we're all more mature, we have more world experience, and we understand that we're not about, you know, doing deals and going to Iceland to see the Northern Lights on the weekends. Yep. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And I think one of the interesting things you shared with us was how Harvard Business School was very strict and you were going through your pregnancy and before you had to deliver your baby you had to uh, go through 20 hours of exams which, which is a huge difficult task and i can't imagine how you went through it i ate a lot of ice cream <laughs> <laughs> i was the uh, yeah at, at harvard at that time they said uh, we we do not want any cheating so everybody has to take the exam at the same time and when i said i'm about to give birth to a child 
Like, like literally I'm going yeah. into labor. They were like, we don't care. And so yeah. I, I did sit and sat through 20 hours, sat through 20 hours of exams. I went into labor immediately afterwards. Um, and 24 hours later, I had my, my son. So I, I consider that my son went to Harvard Business School with me. <laughs> and, um, and it was, it was, it was quite difficult. Yes, it is quite strict. Um, and yet what a great, what a great story now. Um, it yep. reminded me that I could do difficult things. And so many of life's difficulties, um, on the other side of them, if we get through, through them, we have some of our richest lessons. So th this is True. where, where True. I had a rich lesson there and a good story. Yeah. I, and I think the other question I had with respect to this was most of your friends, it was the time where technology was at in the rise and a lot of people went into either investment banking or into the tech field. But, but you went in a totally different path, a path where you are more happier. How did you get to decide to choose this path? And what do you think about that decision? I appreciate this question. And I want to be respectful to people who choose the, the, uh, the path that many take. It can be an excellent training ground for people to take the investment banking and consulting route. They get a lot of exposure. Uh, what I notice is for most of them, it just kicks the can down the road to making decisions about who do I want to be and what kind of work do I want to do. Uh, I um, was, in, in part, I never took advantage of the Harvard Business School career services. And I can't tell you why, except that um, from the Vietnam War, and, the impacts that it had on my father, I had a lot of trauma regarding work. So work was mm -hmm. a place that I was going to always have a difficult time making decisions because I was, okay. uh, because of what I had seen work do to my father. And so I, I've, it's mm -hmm. been a lifelong journey to, uh, change my relationship with work. So I didn't take advantage of the career services. Um, but I always wanted to do something that helped the public in some way. So it was very important to me that whatever task I was going to do, that I could say that it, it was for a wider purpose. And so my first set of jobs out of Harvard Business School were in media, digitizing media, going online with some major brands. And that always gave me a sense of pride that not only was I just, I wasn't just working for myself, but I was working to make the world better. That I can say is part of military service where your family is in service to the country or to the service of the civil rights army, which is we are always going to be trying to make a better place for people. And I, I love that. I just, okay. I resonate with that a lot. And I could not go, I can't do anything that's just for me. And it's not because I'm better than anybody else. It's just, I, I because that, that's my perspective on life. Got it. That's very interesting. And say if you had to go back in time and do something different with your Harvard degree, what would you change in that experience? Okay, this is a funny story. Um, so I, I left my first job five days into it. I had taken a job with the Federal Communications Commission. I was going to be working with uh, on children's television, um, hoping, okay. hope, making a better world for children out of what they could see on television in the United States. And I got to the Federal Communications Commission and they said, guess what, the, uh, all the legislation, all the rules are locked up in deadlock and there's no way that this deadlock is going to change. So you can work on satellites. And I just said, I, I'm not a satellite person. <laughs> so I had another offer from one of my friends. He had started, helped start Yahoo. So he was, he was number three uh, at Yahoo. Tim was his name. And Tim, I called up Tim and I said, Tim, 
I'm out of luck. I started this job and I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm out of luck. He said, oh, come work for Yahoo. We have about 11 employees right, right now. Come work for us. <laughs> and I said, Tim, I, I called up my mentor and I asked him what I should do. I said, if I work for Yahoo, my family is in Washington, D.C. I just had a new baby. I'd be leaving my husband um, who's working at that point. He was working for the United States Supreme Court. So that was a very Tony job. Right. Um, and, and my baby, I would be separating my child from his father and my mentor said, oh, don't move. Every, every company says it's going to go IPO. Every company says it's going to, this company's probably dead in the water. Okay. So about 10 years ago, my mentor called me up and said, how much money did I cost you by making, giving you that advice? I said, oh, about $120 million. <laughs> but, um, but how I've rationalized that is that that's a good story to tell. And money, money is just not my values. I, I grew up without right. much money. You can get along without much money. Um, you you want to have money that covers your costs, that gives you some degree of comfort. But beyond that, um, it just seems like a, a burden. Um, it's not, not everybody's viewpoint. Um, certainly there are a number of people who feel like the more money I have, the more I can give away. But it turns out that you can give away quite a lot of money when you're poor, when you have medium income. You don't have to right. wait till you're rich. <laughs> True. That is for sure, yeah. I think one of the impactful incidents you've had in your life and you've uh, you know you've been generous to share with us was how during your time at selma uh you were in the debate team and you had a very unfortunate incident about your debate partner being killed by your teacher and the main reason i'm uh, i want to know more about that experience and the main reason why i'm asking that is because that particular incident has shaped you and shaped your personal leadership brand as well so if, uh, can you share that with us? Sure. This is a, a trigger warning for your audience because it is a violent situation. Um, to, as I mentioned, I wanted to get out of Selma. And the way that you could get out of Selma was through your education. And I also had an opportunity in Selma to be on the debate team there. The debate team was a national caliber debate team. So it was a real gem. Okay. I got a scholarship to a, an undergraduate college called Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and they had a fabulous debate team. They gave me a full scholarship. Uh, we had a new debate coach at that time, and he, he worked us very hard, but we were very successful. I was a national caliber debater, and I was paired with a person named Rex Copeland. We were best friends, and we were tearing it up. We were at the, at, at the top level. I was given Debater of the Year Award in the United States, um, and, and it's a very successful team. However, I was starting this business, and I could not continue it. Also, our debate coach was becoming uh, much more difficult to work with, we'll say. And so I left the debate team because I said I can't run my business and do the debate team work. And, and they said, you know, sorry, and we'll continue. And the person, there, there were a couple other steps, but essentially what happened was that um, some decisions were made where the team was not winning as much. And mm -hmm. the debate coach seems to have gotten very mad and stabbed my, debate, my former debate partner, Rex Copeland, 22 times. Afterwards, mm -hmm. I... I heard that my best friend had been killed. It was just shocking to me. I was 20 years old. I, I went to our debate coach. He hugged me. We talked about who could have done this. And then a couple days later, there was a note found that he did it. He intended to kill himself. He did not. He ran away. And I was contacted by other members of the debate team. Hey, we know where he is. Can you help us? Can you help him? 
I said no. Um, but I didn't ask where he was. I just said, I, I said no. Um, Mr. Slagle was his name, the coach. He turned himself in a year later, and a trial began. And at 21, I was a witness for the prosecution against a, a teacher who had done really good things for me. I don't think we'll ever know why he did that. And what, one thing that I've learned is that there are crimes of impulse um, and these impulsive actions which cannot be undone, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there was premeditation about it. That if, okay. um, And I think about that, especially with our, our students at Duke, they're engineers, and one of the things that cannot be undone is suicide. And so we, we teach yeah. a class, and we want to make it fun so that people will come every week. They're going to show up. Because I've have friends who's lost students to suicide who were engineers. I know that the right. intensity of the academic schedule can lead to murder, can lead to suicide, and we don't want that. So how can we make it as fun as possible? And that's one that's one impact that you you benefited from. Um, there yes. are other problems though that happen, which is making sense of all of this. How can you? I, I'm a, I identify as Christian. And so one of the mm -hmm. Christian tenets is forgive those who have harmed you. And so how did I make sense of I loved my friend. I needed to forgive somebody who never asked for forgiveness. He never gave me an apology. He never said, wow, I'm sorry for any of this. In fact, he just dug in and said I was justified. Um, and I had to make peace with that. I also had to make peace with deep grief. My friend was not coming back. And if hopefully, well, all of us will experience it at some point, the idea that Grief is just a room full of dark silence. It's yeah. horrible. It is fear personified. You are not getting that other person back. And while it is a, also a process, you sit mm -hmm. with that and it changes you. And so in the face of that, um, I ended up doing a lot of work. What does it mean to die? What does it mean to, to forgive? Um, what does it mean to let go? And I'll end this by saying one of my values to that point in my life had been loyalty. I was loyal. Military kids are loyal. You're loyal to country, you know. Yeah. Um, I, and I realized that loyalty has to have bounds, that loyalty is not a suicide pact. It does not mean that you need to, you need to, to die in order. If somebody dies, that is life. People, people die. Um, and me saying, I can't let my friend die is like me pretending to be God. No, let God be God. Let me be me. People do die. You honor them, but you also live your life. You, I can't possibly stop my life. I tried to. Um, and so, so right. this became the basis of my first novel. Um, it was a best-selling novel called The End of Innocence, which was about how to deal with grief. Um, and the, that novel was centered around war memorials in america we preserve mm -hmm. the our dead uh our dead our, right. who fought who died at war in war memorials and in europe and in america this can sometimes keep us frozen in time um because mm -hmm. we have to always remember the dead and yes we should honor their sacrifices but we should not bury ourselves with them and that was what oh, i learned and God. that was the story uh, the end of innocence about how to come to grips with the idea that no, you're still alive and you have to live. <laughs> that is so true, yeah. And I think because of this incident, one of your general focus areas in life is to heal from moral injuries. Mm -hmm. And the, like as you said, like it's very important for people to heal. But especially for leaders, why do you think it's important for leaders to focus on this 
and especially they want to become good leaders. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you very much for bringing this up. So we need to know why we take the actions we take. And so for a leader to be very self-aware is to understand that if something similar happens in their lives uh, to a wound that they have inside of their heart, they need to treat that as its own unique incidents and not the unique incidents plus what my mother did to me or what my father did to me. And unless you're very self-aware, these emotional responses happen before your brain is even asked about it. So you have stimulus, you have response, even before your brain is asked about it. And then you might hurt people, you might hurt your team and mission, and you don't really even know why you did it. You're like, oh, that was stupid. Well, how about if you heal from the trigger that caused that so that you will not inflict pain on your current situation or future situations, getting you further away from your mission and target. Uh, And that's one of the issues. So you mentioned moral injury. So a moral injury for your listeners is something that you did wrong. Like for instance, maybe you, you cheated on a test or something like that. Okay, so you did something was wrong. You failed to take action. So maybe you knew that somebody was going to murder somebody and you, instead of stopping that to the best of your ability, you went to sleep that night. So that would be yeah. a failure to take action. And the third is betrayal. And during the, the um, public health crisis of COVID, many nurses and doctors felt that they were betraying their oath when they could not help their patients. Okay, these, these are right. patients who you know needed company around them, but you're telling them you can't have company because you might be contagious. And that betrayed their sense of how they take care of people. Um, even though they did not, they were following orders, they were doing what they were told. So that's a, that's a moral injury. And so what we want to do as leaders is address the issue in front of us and not something behind us. Um, and the only way we know what's behind us, because we've, we're really good at keeping secrets from ourselves, is to look at our past and understand what, what needs some gentle healing and then take the steps to address that, knowing that today is one of the best days. Uh, t- not today is one of the best days. This is now the time where so much research has come out about how the body works, how emotional reactions can be defanged, detriggered, mm-hmm. and you can heal from this. You don't have to live with something, uh, a wound for your whole life. The brain actually can, is plastic. It takes a lot of work to change that, but you can do the work and then you get your whole life back. And then as a leader, you become a leader that can act in the moment. You know why you're doing the things that you're doing. And we can tend to do things with a lighter heart um, because we're not mm-hmm. so vulnerable to being triggered. So in, in, right. in, for instance, we might need to fire somebody. Um, I had a lot of trouble disciplining people early on in my life because my father had been inappropriately fired, I feel, from the military. And so when I was looking at a firing situation, I wasn't looking at the, uh, the, the use of justice or the use of fairness or the company mission. I was looking at it through the lens of, but wait, this person might have children and I could affect the children. And I wasn't right by the mission. So once I got healed from, uh, the sadness and devastation that I felt from my early life, I was able to be a better steward for my company and to take just action that actually made sense. Right. That is so true. Yeah. And you spoke about healing and 
what do you think are like some basic steps that anyone can do to one like understand what they need to heal from and uh, you know try to heal themselves what do you think are the basic steps they can do so uh this very complex issue and of course uh, in indian society there are thousands of years of of techniques yeah. and and um ways to go about healing invisible wounds and so i want to take mm -hmm. a bow to the great societies the great wisdom that we have already in our societies and i don't want to come across as like i invented any of this okay um i will share what's ha helped me in mine my life the first is to understand i'm not the first human that lived i'm not the first mm -hmm. person anything that's happened to me has happened to probably a lot of other people so how do i not personalize this as much and say okay what can i do to grow from this very terrible difficult situation that just happened um i can also realize that it's not permanent that what even even yes my friend died my friend was murdered his death is permanent but my grief does not have to be permanent it doesn't even have to be prolonged unless i insist on it being prolonged so so it's not permanent uh, and it's probably not uh the other thing is just seeing how pervasive is this issue so perhaps um you know my my father had a difficult time with the military does everybody have a difficult time with the military no so is it pervasive is it permanent is it personal these are ways of framing a, a, an invisible wound that we have that if we frame it in ways that are not pervasive permanent and personal uh, that's called learned optimism we can have a freer sense of how to change our relationship with our wound. So that that's one thing. It's called learned yeah. optimism. Martin E.P. Seligman has done a lot of work on how we explain to ourselves what happened. My second one is think about our purpose. What are we here for? Okay, we're here to flourish. I believe that we're here to flourish. So my next thought, will my next thought take me closer to flourishing or further away from flourishing? And if it's further away from flourishing, why would I do it? Now, I might have stupid reasons. I might say, I just want to cry. And, and I, I love this term I just learned, this crib. I might want a crib. <laughs> That's a fabulous <laughs> word. Okay. I might want a crib. Yep. But, um, you know, but that, I, I understand that self-defeating. Okay. So how do I take the ne next action? So my purpose, uh, what, is my, what are my values? What am I practicing to become? Um, and then an, an, another one is to just be aware. Okay, hey, wow, I didn't like how I reacted in that situation. Or, wow, uh, you know, my emotions went to 11 on that one. And they really should have just hung out at about two or three. I wonder with right. curiosity and kindness to myself, what's going on? And then usually you can find out when you have it, when you overreact or when your body overreacts, you can start saying, hmm, I'm, I'm curious about why I got triggered. And then I'm going to investigate that triggering incident. And then I'm going to explore um, with great entrepreneurial zeal how I will not be vulnerable to that trigger again. Right. And so part of this is about a good defense, trying to not be vulnerable. Part of it is about the joy of life. Hmm. Very interesting, yeah. Uh, definitely, I think throughout this semester when i've done the management course i've learned a lot about myself like the moral injuries i've had and try to understand and i've spoken to you multiple times about it 
And I think one thing that really fascinated me was your belief in spirituality and how spirituality can help you, uh, you know, go through these moral injuries and heal from them. So what does spirituality mean for you, to you? And what is the outcome you, you wanted to gain out of uh, understanding spirituality? Oh, okay. Well, again, I'm very humble <laughs> talking to a person from India, the center <laughs> of spirituality in the world. Um, for me, it, it starts with when I cry, when, I, when I'm devastated and I cry, am I crying into a void? Is there nothing right. I'm crying into? And that's the first question I think a lot of people have to ask when they, when they cry, their deepest cry. Are they crying out to a void or do they expect some answer to come out? And right. I realize I expect some answer to come back. So I feel that I'm in relationship with something. I'm not going to give it a name because I'm not, um, I'm not stupid. There's so many different names for that, which is uh, spirit. Um, and and so I, I then have to answer the question, is this a, a mean spirit? Is this an uncaring spirit? Or is this a spirit that there is some evidence of love? And I've answered that for myself, that this is a spirit that ultimately the spirit is a spirit of deep love and then i believe if you believe that you're not crying out to the there's something out there and it may be good then i'm curious about what my relationship can be with it um and mm. so i try to be curious I, and understand um why suddenly I feel like singing sometimes. I mean, it's so irrational. I'm just walking down and said, or I see something so beautiful. I start to cry. Like what, what's going on? I didn't create that, that, you know, those beautiful mountains. I didn't, I didn't suddenly give myself a sense of spirit of, of singing of, of, you know, breathing in so that I can rejoice what's going on there. And so I, I view that these elements of, um, these elements of lifting inspiration, that means a breath of way I'm gonna change mm -hmm. my breath to be in relationship with a greater good as deeply rewarding, uh, like delicious elements of life that I would never want to be without. Um, so I, that, that is my sense of spirit. And I try to be as open as possible because I do not know. Now, there's one other mm. um, element that I will share. Uh, there's a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who in the Western traditions uh, studied death. She gave us the different phases of grief that happened to a person right. after death. And she wrote a book called, I think, On Life After Death. And she was studying at the University of Chicago, studied 20,000 people worldwide. And these were 20,000 people worldwide who had died and then come back to life. So their bodies were clinically dead, and then they, for whatever reason, their bodies restart. She interviewed them with the team and said, you know, what, what's your perspective? And she said that these people told her over and over, basically the same thing, which was none of them regretted dying. Mm. And that was shocking to me. Like, what? You did? Like, they do it again? What? Really? Um, and, and then the second one was that they sensed um, a sense of judgment, that there was judgment, but it was self-judgment. Like, hey, I could have done these things better. And then a sense of love. Right. And I like that. I'm, and she said, look, you don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe my study. And she says, ominously, you'll experience it. Mm, I <laughs> so, I was like, okay. Yeah. But, but anyway, that, that, was, that was to me interesting um, and helpful. And right. um, so I end up believing that 
personally, every person I see, I need to offer what I call core conditions to. Um, in Christianity, they would call that the Imago Dei. Every person has the imprimatur of God on them, the stamp of God on them. And that's, right. that's kind of heavy to me. It's like, how about if I just see the, the bright human spirit in each person and respect it um, and right. have that, then my decisions are made for me. My like, life's a little bit easier. Every person I see, I'm going to respect, offer them the core conditions. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to flourish with my next step. And then I have a lot of time to do other stuff with my life. Right, definitely. I think, yeah, that reduces the uh, cognitive thinking about that particular situation, definitely. <laughs> and the interesting thing about you, Professor Allegra, when I spoke to you was uh, you spoke about having a dream team where you have a set of people, a set of mentors who you reach out to uh, for any uh, specific situation or advice. Can you tell us how you built this dream team of yours and how they've helped you grow throughout your life? Sure. Well, I'll say that I started without a dream team when I needed one. Okay. <laughs> I, yes. I didn't, I, I was a person who thought I've got it together um, until I went through a divorce and I could not fathom that I was getting a divorce. It was just mind boggling to me. And so I realized I had a lot of work to do because if I was that blind, then I needed to help have uh, some help getting better vision about who I was, what I was in, and, and what I needed to do. Um, and so the first uh, person was a good friend, and I eventually married him, Ted Ryan. Uh, he's both yes. a philosopher, um, a life coach, and, um, and a, a, spir- a spiritual director in some ways. He's trained at seminary. And then I would have a spiritual director so I could ask these deep theological questions too. But it didn't mean that I would necessarily answer them or that they would be spiritually training me to be a Jesuit or something like that. I'm female, I could not be a Jesuit even if I tried. But that I would get some of the uh, tremendous wisdom from the wisdom traditions about that. So spiritual director, I have a therapist. And that therapist is terrific because I could take her usually my problems, and say, I need some help thinking about this issue. This issue is emotional to me, and I would like it not to be emotional in the future. Or I had a nightmare, and I don't want to continue to have nightmares. What, what might be going on such that I'm getting these nightmares? Um, then I had a host okay. of coaches, life coaches, everything from uh, people who would teach me different tools uh, to use, such as EMDR, which is a form of hypnosis, um, trance, these different tools. Um, those are techniques, um, as well as ask me coaching questions that would help me build my business. Um, so that's another one. Uh, and then, of course, we have people who help us run our, our lives. So someone who helps me mm-hmm. um, take care of my gardening twice a year, you know, just, just the normal house and, and like a financial Correct. advisor. Correct. So I, I would always get afraid about money. And so this person takes mm-hmm. care of it for me. It's just like I know what's, what's happening and then I'm on the right path. Does that help? Right. Yes, I think that's amazing. I think no one thinks about having like a set of people who you rely on. And especially, I think the problem is one, people don't know what they need. And once they know what they need, they don't seek out help and like go find people to, you know, help yourself out. But thank you so much for this amazing conversation and being so vulnerable. And the last question I want to end this podcast with you is, You've been teaching a lot of engineers, a lot of technologists to become future leaders. How do you think the next generation 
leaders must build a sense of spirituality and ethics to be great leaders. I have a lot of delight and excitement about this next generation of leaders. Um, here's why. Purpose-driven leaders who are ready to tackle the big issues of the day. No, we don't have to live with poverty. No, we don't have to live with bad climate. We don't have to live with war. We are not an impoverished generation. We're not going to do that. So right. I love that. So the next generation uh, needs to be purpose-driven. They need to be authentic, which means if you need help, get the help. Don't deny that you need right. that. It's like, you don't want to be effective? What? Like, be effective, okay? So I think the next generation, if they're purpose-driven, if they seek help when they need it, that means they have a growth mindset, that they will be in a okay. better position to cut out um, the, the horrible posing, the, the, uh, that in America we call it the American perfectionism look that kills okay. us. It kills us because it stops us from getting help. It stops us from changing. Let's admit that we're broken, and in that, we can start solving some problems. Um, and so I think that this new generation that had to live with the pandemic, they said, look, guys, we have a purpose. We understand that um, business now, it didn't used to be, used to be ridiculed if you said anybody, but anything but making money is okay. We're going to run businesses for the benefit of community, for humans, and we can flourish together. Not everybody's going to be like that, but enough are to create a critical mass. I am so excited about this next generation. That's why I spend my time grading your papers, uh, encouraging everybody, because, um, because I'm excited. This is a really great time to be a leader in the world. Definitely. Yeah. And I think with that excitement, we can end this podcast. Thank you so much, Professor Alegra. I love this conversation and I'm pretty sure people who are going to listen to it are going to get lots of value from it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an honor to be here.